0: these are people that just can't help but generate ideas all the time and have passion around them something for your mind
1: listening to episode 3 of Something for Your Mind. I am your host, François Dezion. In this episode of Something for Your Mind, we will cover a few different subjects. For one, we'll talk about kinematic display. No, this is not cinematic. Kinematic displays improving your communications and we'll talk about also entrepreneurship co-working spaces and innovation in a collection of uh, papers edited by uh, Bill Cleveland under the title Dynamic Graphics Statistics uh, one of the uh, paper was called Kinematic Display of Multivariate Data And it mentioned uh, uh, in the abstract, graphic devices are now available for kinematic display of three-dimensional scenes. What uh, year do you think that was? Well, obviously, it was quite a while back. So, Dynamic Graphics for Statistics was actually published in 1988, but this particular paper was initially published in 1982. So we would think that by now in 2016, kinematic displays would be well-known and totally understood and used quite heavily. Well, first of all, what is a kinematic display? Well, I'll quote uh, Tukey here. In Interpreting Multivariate Data uh, from uh, 1981, Tukey, well, it actually was a collaboration between Paul Tukey and John Tukey, but uh, mentions the following under kinematic display. Much can be gained by showing motion, although this can hardly be done on paper. In kinematic displays, a threefold separation into front variables, the two overtly before us, middle variables, those having effects on changes in view position by simulated rotations or vibrations, and back variables, those not currently affecting position, becomes important. Now, if we think about data, charts, plots, bar charts, so on and so forth, uh, that's the bulk of what we see in uh, reports, but also in PowerPoint presentations. These uh, slide decks uh, are typically very long, with a lot of graphics and a lot of text accompanying it. But why not, in certain cases, replace those with video sequences? who said that a slide deck had to be static. Uh, I mean, if we were in uh, 1970 and the only thing uh, uh, that we had were slides uh, from uh, film cameras, then perhaps that wouldn't make a lot of sense, right? But we can trace back into history, uh, even uh, in the early 20th century, the use of slides and motion to uh, do presentations. So really there's no excuse so earlier this year in a presentation i did at southeast linux fest on the open source data science uh, tool set the galaxy as i called it i started my presentation with a video sequence and that video sequence was actually music playing and on the screen uh, you would see the notes or agglomeration of notes perhaps chords and different colors, different shapes, corresponding to these things. And I used an open framework to do this. And of course, it's a little bit more work than just doing a slide, maybe showing a partition of music. But data, and in this case music, which is a type of data, to be represented effectively, can definitely use more dimensions than... Uh, our X and Y axes. So audio and video allow us to uh, add some extra uh, dimensions to our presentations uh, of data, but also to presentations in general. How many times have you sat in front of a slide uh, presentation and thought, I wish I was elsewhere? And most of the time, uh, there's absolutely uh, no other content than static slides full of text, right? How about making the effort to introduce your presentation through a video or to make a point right in the middle or toward the end uh, with another video? Uh, In the case of the Southeast presentation, I did use several videos throughout the whole talk. And more recently, I was asked to do a presentation at the uh, Triangle uh, Linux user group regarding the effective use of audio-video production tools to create more professional-looking content, bring a little more polish to it. But also, what were the tools? And so, in this case, um, well, it was heavily video-oriented. However, part of the presentation is of interest to uh, listeners. Uh, and so I decided to uh, select a few um, segments and uh, present them today. And then after this part, we will continue on, on to the subject of entrepreneurship. Why, right? I mean, why, why do AV for presentations or in general? So, uh, earlier this year, I presented at Southeast Linux Fest on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Data Science Galaxy. And basically, data science starts with a question and ends with an answer. It requires communication. It requires all kinds of other things. And people will tell you, oh yeah, I'm a data scientist because I know how to model things. Well, no, that's just one little piece Really, communication is super important. If you're not communicating your results, or you don't know how to communicate them, and not communicating them effectively, you're just playing around. That's plain and simple. So I tend to introduce visualizations, and a lot of them are animated videos, and things like that. And sometimes I might complement that with commentaries and things like that. So how do you do that with open source software. So at that presentation, I mentioned a few open source software, and I actually opened the presentation with a simple animation. So today we'll talk about a few different aspects of how you can improve your presentations. And also just for personal enjoyment of your home videos uh, where you're recording your family or things like that, you might still want to put a little bit of polish on it. So it requires a bit of planning. So here, uh, this is a picture I took. Uh, This is where I work in Winston-Salem. And it's an atrium, so it's lit from above from uh, natural light. Uh, So every day I would go through, and I'm like, I wonder when is the best time to take a picture where the colors really are the best looking. So I started making little notes on that. And one day I'm like, okay, this, this, is, this is about as good as it's gonna get for the color, so I'm gonna take a picture of So planning, uh, when you're recording video, when you're doing presentations, that's super important. You gotta know what's your output, what, what message, what are you trying to achieve, who you're going to present that to, and what are the sources. Uh, so for example, I mean, for those that have been using Linux for a long time, you're probably very used to getting a lot of stuff for free, right? One of the things that uh, I discovered while working at the CBC is that there are unions, there are copyrights, and I was like, okay, so I can't use this? No, no, this is actually a copyright, and we will not get the clearance for that or this and that. And so I started realizing that if I wanted to make sure that the content that I was going to use, I, I could use it, I had to produce it, or find a source that allowed me to use it in a more uh, lenient way. So for example, Wiki media has different licenses. I'm sure you're familiar with these different licenses. Uh, CC is for Creative Commons. In the case of uh, Creative Commons, there are different types of licenses and there are different types of uh, websites that you can go. If you just search for Creative Commons, you'll find a ton of sound, uh, of sound bites, sound clips, video clips, uh, full sequences, and there's a specific license, and it'll tell you, you can use this without modification, you can use this with modification, you don't have to credit me, or you have to credit me, so on and so forth. You just follow these instructions, and in the case of a video, if you need to credit somebody, then you put that at the end in the credits, and basically specify uh, the information that needs to be specified there. So the advantage is that when you're doing planning, and you're like, oh, I need a, a sequence of somebody driving down the highway so I could go and do that or I could go and check online to see if somebody has made that available for me, right? So audio if you've ever paid close attention to audio recorded through the, the sound card on your computer with headphones and you put your headphones on and you start paying attention to the background you'll hear a little like tick 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 or, or all kinds of different sounds that It's like no, I I know for sure this was not in the room. I know it wasn't in the room. Why is it recording that? Right. So these um, the majority of sound cards that are built into the motherboards are not designed to reject 100% of the RF noise from the computer, and so you get these different things. Um, Even professional recorders sometimes, based on the, the the quality of your batteries and the the quality of the SD card that you're using, you might start hearing uh, some sounds. So one way around that is to uh, use uh, slightly higher grade equipment. The other option is to use FireWire. FireWire devices are rack mount devices like this or some can be just tabletop and uh, in this case it's a PreSonus but there's a ton of different brands that you can uh, buy and basically I will put this presentation online also on GitHub so you can go and click on the links and uh, go into the detail of for example ALSA drivers what are all the sound cards that are supported and what you want to look for is a is a card that has uh, either it's an external module like this which makes it a lot better in terms of quality uh, and the uh, probability of picking up the RF from the computer would be much less on those uh, than uh, internal sound cards, but there are some internal sound cards that have actually some fairly good ratings, so you just need to look into those reviews. Um, And then, of course, if you're on a laptop, uh, well, you're kind of stuck, right? Uh, I would say that, in general, laptops are not the ideal platform for video editing but if you are going that route you can still go with FireWire, for example, uh, you can have a a USB adapter for that or or even a USB sound card Uh, that will uh, go a long way to improve your sound quality. So uh, a UE Pro is a basically a way to calibrate your display and the way it works is that you would just go and put it in the middle of the screen, you plug it on the USB, it has little suction cups that make it uh, stay on the screen, and you run DisplayCal. DisplayCal, uh, well, of course, your device has to be supported in Linux and by DisplayCal, which, behind the scene, uses Argyle CMS, Color Management System, and so it will calibrate your display. Now, you might be thinking, why Why in the world would I want to do that? Uh, obviously, it calibrates the whole series of Devices you want to use, so that what you see on the screen is what people will see on their screen or their printer or so on and so forth. So it's not just for photo; it's obviously super important for video. Now, what if you are not colorblind, which the majority of us are not? So, but what if you want to make sure that the content you're making is colorblind friendly? Color Oracle is a freeware that will allow you to basically simulate different types of color blindness on your screen directly live, and then you can see, oh, well, this is kind of hard to see. I was going to mention also Redshift. Uh, It's a tool that's actually pretty popular with programmers, and basically what it does is it dims your monitor based on the ambient light. Now, be careful when you're using that with your display calibration. You can actually get some weird results. So, I wouldn't recommend running that necessarily for editing video. Just something to keep in mind. But I figured I'd mention it. I hope you gain a few uh, points that you can integrate into your next presentation. And so, now we will continue on into an interview I did with uh, Peter Marsh of uh, Flywheel Coworking. Uh, here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So let's go right into it. So I'm here with uh, Peter Marsh uh, of uh, Flywheel, amongst other things, but uh, I'll let him uh, first introduce himself.
0: So uh, my name is Peter Marsh and I'm one of the co-founders of Flywheel Coworking in Winston-Salem. Uh, it is a uh, 10,000 square foot co-working space. Uh, we call it a co-working innovation space because we're very focused on creating new startups and uh, kind of creating a a community that's composed of subject matter experts that mash up and create new things every day.
1: So, Flywheel is not uh, obviously the the first uh, project that you've um, tackled here in Winston-Salem, obviously. Right. The flywheel is in
0: the middle of the innovation quarter, which happens to be uh, a very large urban redevelopment project. It's 230 acres in the central business district of Winston-Salem. And we were very fortunate to be involved with the institutions in the planning and design of many of the projects in the innovation quarter. So I'm very familiar with that. My, my daytime job is an uh, architecture and design practice and it's one of uh five companies that i'm currently involved in uh which include an investment fund a uh non-profit organization and uh, two design practices in addition to flywheel so uh, i'm it keeps me pretty busy
1: <laughs> so yes i believe uh, that uh, makes uh, for a busy 24 hours yes. every day yep. yes all right, very good. So uh, if we go back to uh, Flywheel, so it is a co-working space. Could right. you briefly, for those that are not really familiar with a co-working space, sure. define it? Sure. Sure. So the co-working
0: movement in the United States really kind of got going around the year 2007. Um, it started with uh, a co-working space in California. And the basic idea and what it's, what it's responding to is the fact that a large portion of the working population in the United States today are what are called contingent workers. They're not full-time employees uh, uh, of a corporation, but they're basically either outsourced or contractors. And in many cases, uh, with the advent of the sharing economy, they're actually uh, freelancers or uh, you know people that do uh, side-gigging using uh, job-sharing platforms. So that population of workers in the United States has grown to be about 35% of the total workforce. So it's a really huge number of people basically that are working outside the context of a corporate organization. Uh, And what happens is those folks uh, are subject matter experts uh, in a wide variety of fields, ranging from research and science to web design, graphic design. Software development, skill sets like those. And they need a place to work. So uh, uh, many of them work out of the home, but find that to be kind of lonely and isolating. So, in looking for a social and kind of more community based environment to work out of, uh, they frequently will try out a coffee shop, but they find that there's too many distractions there. There's also a lot of distractions at home if you've ever tried to work at home. Um, so what co-working provides is a number of things. It's a, it provides a, basically a professional workspace uh, that has kind of a, a, a completely different vibe and an atmosphere to it that's uh, very appealing. Um, it provides the social context for uh, being an independent worker, but still having a social community surrounding you. Um, it provides the ability to get engaged with entrepreneurs of all types, shapes and sizes, which is actually quite invigorating if you're, uh, if you're an independent worker. Um, and what happens is uh, a sense of community forms in these spaces. Uh, so they become not, not really virtual organizations, but they become virtual workplaces that have lots of contributors. Um, And co-working spaces uh, now have become major kind of network nodes around the United States. Uh, And the co-working community itself is networked together. There's a program called a co-working visa that allows you, if you're a member of a co-working space in, in any city in the United States, to utilize other co-working spaces uh, in other communities, for free, it's kind of a recipro- reciprocity arrangement among the big co-working space operators. So there's this really, really strong network context that that applies to co-working uh, spaces that that helps uh, kind of surcharge the environment.
1: So you mentioned obviously several times community. Uh, versus, uh, as you said, maybe working from home or at a coffee shop. At a coffee shop, you're still trying to reach out to the community, but at the same time, people are probably there also just because they want to have coffee and not because they want to share thoughts or anything like that. But you didn't mention that community aspect. So how does that help also uh, from a perspective of somebody who's maybe just working by himself and now suddenly has this community around him?
0: Right. So um, using Flywheel as an example, we have uh, currently 129 members. Majority of those members are actually companies, either solopreneurs or micro companies. Uh, In some Cases we have larger teams of eight to twelve people that are um, actually running substantial volume operations out of our space. so uh, what happens is when those when you put that many entrepreneurs in a space together, um, they 're there to work. so the space is typically pretty quiet, but we have uh, we provide lots of amenities like a beverage bar that's stocked with coffee and tea. We have a kegerator for, you know, kind of uh, when people are ready to kick back at the end of the day. Um, so we've, we've created uh, lots of different kind of choices of social environments in the space. And people meet each other. They get to know each other. And before you know it, know it they're working on projects together. Or in some cases, the right combination of talent comes together and our members become co-founders of new startup companies. So in the last two years, for example, we've had over 20 startup companies form out of the flywheel community, sometimes in a serendipitous way, and other times in a much more structured manner, uh, uh, going through our accelerator programs and things of that nature. But what happens is uh, when you mix lots of uh, experts together in a room like that, you get you get uh, uh, kind of this community recombinant DNA that happens and it forms it it tends to
1: form uh, project oriented work as well as new companies Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's also it could be as simple as uh, just a oh, I know this person that knows this person that does this, that you're trying to, uh, that you're looking for or whatever. I had a a little uh, experience like that where I I just stumbled upon somebody I had spoken to several times at uh, Flywheel and uh, I was uh, telling him uh, what I was uh, trying to do and I was looking for a printer that had specific requirements and he said, well, I don't know any, but I know somebody that's really connected to this field and sure enough, uh, you know, was able to help me out from yeah, that perspective.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's, I think, typical of pretty much all co-working spaces. Once once trust is built among members, uh, people start to op- open up their information resources and their Rolodexes. Uh, I guess that's an old-fashioned term. Maybe I should say contact databases. Um, but people begin to open up their networks to each other and it, it, it makes it uh, much more efficient and effective if you're an entrepreneur to be in that kind of environment because you're surrounded with lots of folks who uh, willingly will spend you know time and some of their social capital to help you advance your cause. That's also the fundamental uh, theory behind all of our programming, which is both educational and event-oriented. So we run um, lots of structured programming, some of which is on regularly scheduled basis, like you know, every month, for example, we have pitch scrubs and idea taps, uh, which are kind of open mic nights for entrepreneurs to get up in front of their friendly audience and, and practice pitching their ideas or getting ready to pitch to investors for outside capital. Um, we also have an event called Startup Grind, which is supported by Google for entrepreneurs. And Startup Grind actually is a global network uh, of entrepreneurs. There's about 240 cities that participate in Startup Grind. And within those 240 cities, there's close to half a million entrepreneurs that are communicating on a daily basis through a Basecamp site. And the fact that we host that kind of activity in our space creates the opportunity uh, in a monthly event. We have regular fireside chats that are called Startup Grinds. And those typically attract an audience of uh, around 75 people. It's a networking opportunity for the members in the space. It, it brings the community into the space for them to interact with. But more importantly, uh, it it gives them access to this global entrepreneurial network that they can tap into. and and ask questions, look for resources, try to find you know, co-founder partners, things of that nature. So uh, we run a number of activities like that. Uh, and then on the educational programming side, all of our educational programming is focused on lean startup methods, on how to start a new business uh, with, with the minimum investment of time and money. Um, which is essentially what you have to do to get through the startup stages. And then secondly, we, we have a lot of training around software development skills and technology skills, which are you know, kind of a fundamental requirement for participating in the global economy.
1: Is that the, the Canvas uh, method there? Or? Yeah, we
0: use the uh, Lean Canvas uh, method, which is what we teach in our in our startup curriculum. The courseware is actually based on a Stanford University course, and a lot of the learnings that... Uh, the like the video lectures, the reading materials, and so forth that are the foundation of the course come out of Y Combinator, which is the, the biggest tech accelerator in uh, in the world, which is based in Silicon Valley. So they kind of downloaded and shared some of their informational resources and best practices, and we use that as, as the fundamentals in the course. And then we mix it up with local successful entrepreneurs and folks that are actually going through the startup process in our course so that they're learning from you know peers in their local community that that are actually applying lean startup methods. So lean lean startup essentially is about getting your idea to repeatable revenue in the most efficient way possible so that you don't get to a point where you're totally burned out or you've run out of money and and therefore fail as a startup. So it's, it's a whole method of uh, kind of using um, uh, different methodologies for identifying the problem you're solving and getting a fit between the problem and the solution, getting a, lots of customer validation uh, as part of the process, so the customers are validating that the market is there, and then moving on to... Uh, the the fit of your solution to the actual marketplace which is called getting market traction and beginning to acquire your first customers and validating your revenue model Mm -hmm. so we we teach all of those methods over a 10 10 month period Um, we also teach marketing legal uh, and and uh, financial we we have a financial module that's part of the course It's focused on bootstrapping and focused on uh, raising outside capital.
1: In fact, um, and I think you've touched on the point that because you add this local flavor, also there's a certain advantage to go through that process versus, uh, you know, maybe uh, taking the, the course online on your own, right. by yourself, yeah. with nobody to, say, yeah. uh, encourage you or, or basically telling you, well, right. maybe reality check and yeah. you need Yeah, I mean, there whatever. is
0: tons right. of great material online. There are a lot of really good blogs by um, uh, people that have been very successful, particularly in tech entrepreneurship. And, you know, the Lean Canvas, uh, like Ash Moira's site or um, Oster Wilder's uh, book about lean business models, the Startup Owner's Manual by Steve Blank, you know, those, those are the fundamental kind of things that you can go out there and discover on your own. What the course does uh, essentially is it forces you to do your homework, you know, right? So even though that stuff is widely distributed in the internet, you know, having the discipline to actually read it and then engage with with a group of like-minded entrepreneurs, discuss the materials, and then what what we actually do in our course is we we try to advance the businesses of the people that are in the course. So we we do we apply the lean canvas to each one of their businesses. And and as a group, we try to facilitate the advancement of their startup ideas while they're in the course. So it's, it's kind of a forward-leaning curriculum where you're actually working on your idea while you're taking the course.
1: Right, right. And then the other thing I was, as you were saying this, I was thinking, well, if you look at all the successful companies, that's your only sample then you're hitting the survivorship bias, right? I mean, you're only looking at those that are successful and maybe that worked for them, but they may be actually unusual in the way they approach things. And really, that's not necessarily the only thing you should look at. You know, you shouldn't, you know, the voice of experience, people that have done these things. I mean, I remember one fire uh, side chat uh, uh, where... um, uh, the presenter was talking about uh, his experience on uh, uh, it was uh, basically doing microchips you know, for right yeah. for communication and Gorilla all that. RF right, right. and mm-hmm. how basically instead of going for what was proven he actually went and uh, did something a little different. And, you know, I mean, the, listening yeah, he, to these experiences... He kind uh... of took
0: a smaller slice of the market as a startup to focus on and, and started to scale from there, which is which is really good advice that we give all of our startups. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty well known that uh, on average, about 75% of startups fail. What is also not as well known is that Almost all of the job creation in the United States comes from startups that are less than five years old. So the major Fortune 500 co- corporations have have not really increased overall employment in the U.S. They've actually killed jobs um, and become leaner and meaner in response to the, uh, the global marketplace. And quite honestly, that is largely what's created the opportunity for co-working companies because... A lot of folks that used to be in a corporate environment are now working out of, out of co-working spaces. But the, the fact of the matter is that most startups fail. And lean startup methods are all about trying to improve your odds by keeping you focused on what really matters and not, not trying to launch you know, the absolute perfect product or the absolute perfect solution without talking to customers. It really emphasizes the, the customer feedback loop and, try, and going out early with a less-than-perfect solution to, to do market testing and market validation so that you're spending less time, less resources getting to, getting to that repeatable revenue model that, that drives success. And uh, the, it's honestly a lot of what happens with startup companies that are going through formation has to do with luck. And it has to do with just the right combination of people coming together at the right place in the right time. It has to do with the the uh, strength of the idea. Um, it has to do with how big the idea is. So one of the one piece of advice we give a lot of our members and a lot of our startups that are working on entrepreneurial ideas is, you know, the the bigger the market, the better. The the bigger the opportunity for scalability, the better. Um, so a lot of times we'll have startups realize that the, the idea that they've gone out with is not really scalable, but along the way they discover a version of that idea or a completely different idea that is scalable and has a very large market attached to it. So, um, so you know, essentially we're kind of in the business of trying to improve the odds of uh, startups being successful through our curriculum and through our programming. Right.
1: And then the more there are successful uh, companies like that, I mean, basically it grows also the right. local... Uh, it grows the employment base. Yes. Um,
0: you know, the uh, startup companies tend to go uh, where the best resources are for them geographically. So. Um, you know, one of one of the things that we're really, really focused on in our space is the development of a talent pool. Because the more great talent there is locally, the more likely the startup is to remain local, um, and also access to capital. So there's there's kind of three critical ingredients to uh, successful startup and entrepreneurship ecosystem.
1: One thing I would like to cover is, um, as far as the events, there's one that's up and coming, and maybe even after all the warnings we've said, maybe somebody is uh, motivated to try to get from ID to product.
0: Yeah, so uh, great, great uh, thought. So this, uh, 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 in just a couple of weeks, on November 11th, we're hosting our annual Startup Weekend event, And uh, Startup Weekends are uh, events that are uh, now managed by Techstars, which is one of the big um, technology startup enterprises that runs accelerators and has investment funds around the United States. Um, So the fact that Techstars has jumped in and adopted this process is, is really powerful because they have extremely good facilitators. The, what a startup weekend is all about, and the the, the we'll, we'll be holding the next one on, as I said, November 11th at Flywheel. It's it's uh, it starts Friday night. It runs th- all the way through to Sunday evening, and basically it's a complete immersion in lean startup methods with a whole bunch of other people. So um, people sign up for it. Typically there's 50 to 60, in some markets you get over 100 people that are part of the weekend. Anybody can pitch an idea. The the ideas are voted on in terms of which ones are developed. Then you have to form a team, and then the team has to execute. Um, So Friday night is about uh, pitching your idea and forming a team. Saturday is all about uh, getting out of the building and doing customer validation exercises and uh, beginning to do uh, product development and um, uh, minimum viable product experiments uh, with customers. Then Saturday evening, the teams typically work late into the night, continuing to research and develop their ideas. Sunday, the focus is on putting it all together in a pitch deck that is presented to a panel of judges Sunday night. You know, to find out who who who. Uh, gets first place in the competition, so to speak. This year, we've added a really special ingredient because um, the the intent of Startup Weekends is to provide this immersion in lean startup methods. It's not so much to form a whole bunch of companies, although there are many, many instances in which successful startup companies have actually uh, originated at Startup Weekends. Um, And what we found is those that have that opportunity to carry on or the interest to carry on after a startup weekend typically need two vital resources. They need uh, marketing uh, and web development type uh, resources, and they need software development resources. So this year we have two major firms that are actually donating uh, $10,000 each of uh, marketing and software development services to the to the top three winners of the startup weekend so nice. so if they want to, they can actually take their idea and continue to develop it with with donated resources that that uh, uh, actually members of our community have chosen to throw into the hopper so it's it 's really a lot of fun it's 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 high energy high octane. Uh, kind of weekend um, people it 's a people talk about them for years after they 've had the experience, and it 's a great way for potential entrepreneurs to test the waters and to meet a whole lot of people that are in the entrepreneurship community um, during the course of the weekend there 's lots and lots of coaches that participate, and the coaches basically are you know successful entrepreneurs that are coming in to help these folks go through the experience that they went through it's really it's really a powerful experience
1: so it's kind of uh like a boot camp compressed into a hackathon type right. of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. of yeah it's just it's just 56 hours of startup frenzy and
0: um uh we uh, last year we had a couple of collegiate teams that uh, came in and never left the space they just basically we we rearranged our soft seating so they had couches to sleep on in the wee hours of the morning and they just stayed at it constantly for fifty six hours it was pretty amazing um, so that you know that's that's the kind of thing that happens in these weekends and the the ideas are really interesting too. Uh, they they vary there's a huge variety of ideas that are always presented at these things and uh, it's interesting to see the crowd go through the selection process of which ones to develop
1: Well, I appreciate your time, and uh, that's a lot of uh, great information, and I'm sure we'll uh, do a follow-up episode in the future. Thanks
0: very much for the opportunity, and uh, I I wish you well. All right. All right. right. Take
1: care. And so during this interview with uh, Peter, there was uh, a lot of interesting stuff, and there will be further uh, discussions also, but uh, there was a whole section on what is an entrepreneur and what what does it take to be one, Uh, because... uh, While some people assume that one is born an entrepreneur or that it's after maybe a very long study of various subjects that uh, one wakes up as an entrepreneur. But that's not really the case. Well, let's uh, listen to the next segment here into uh, learn more. And we'll learn more about entrepreneurship.
0: You have to have people that are generating lots of ideas all the time. So a true entrepreneur uh, keeps an idea journal, is constantly coming up with potential ideas for new companies. It's, it's, It's a way of thinking that's different from what we're typically taught and what most people experience. These are people that just can't help but generate ideas all the time and have passion around them. Um, out of that portfolio of ideas, you want to select the ones that have the best opportunity for, for market viability, right? So coming out of the idea funnel, so the first essential ingredient is lots of people with lots of ideas. The second essential ingredient is a very disciplined and structured process to take those ideas through for development. And that's, that's what our Lean Startup methods are all about in our curriculum um, we have an investment fund, an inception stage investment fund that we've launched that's uh, been supported by the local successful entrepreneurs in the community uh, to create uh, inception stage financing for startups. And uh, those that are chosen enter into an accelerator, which is a very, very disciplined uh, developmental process, and... Um, and so that's the second critical ingredient is a disciplined developmental process with lots of good mentors you have to have really good engaged mentors in the community and the very best mentors tend to be uh... young entrepreneurs that have had some initial success um, with uh... launching ideas and making money and then the third critical ingredient you need to have is uh, continuous access to capital even, even the least expensive startup ideas, which are typically software uh, development ideas, uh, you know, eventually need an infusion of capital to grow and scale and start hiring people and, um, and you know, expanding out the opportunity. Um, so it starts with inste- inception stage funding, and inception stage funding essentially gives the startup the opportunity to, quote, unquote, quit their day job and focus full-time on their startup idea so it's a little bit of capital but it's very important capital that gives them the confidence to to move forward it's the first money in it's the riskiest money but in my opinion it's the most important money and that's why we formed our uh, new ventures investment fund the second piece is you you know and you can there are different ways to also bootstrap for long periods of time we have some startups that have uh bootstrapped hundred percent to six you know to positive revenue. Uh we have some startups that have gone you know a year, year and a half before they needed to uh engage any outside capital. So it varies on it varies on the team and the idea and the, and kind of what their what their resources look like. But, but eventually most startups in order to rapidly grow the company uh which is very important from a competitive standpoint are gonna require outside capital. And, so, and they've gotta have contiguous access to capital. So being able to bridge from inception stage to seed rounds to series A, series B, series C rounds in a continuous manner is very important to a startup ecosystem. Um, in the last 24 months here in Winston-Salem, we've assembled that whole uh, contiguous investment stack. Uh, in the form of about $45 million in investment funds at each one of those stages. Okay. So we're, we're, the community has kind of rallied around the understanding that access to investment capital is essential and putting together the various stages where that capital
1: is needed. Okay, so let's say somebody is listening to all of this and they're thinking like half of what he's saying I don't even understand. Yeah. I'm definitely not an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I'll never be one. Right. Right. And they have this idea that uh, one day you wake up and you're magically becoming an entrepreneur. But yeah. uh, What what, what would you tell them?
0: Yeah, that's that's not really at all how it works. I mean, and and there are many, many entrepreneurs that kind of go in and out of the startup ecosystem. Many people uh, do a startup. Um, sell it and go to a corporate job or they're acquired and become part of a corporation and then they flip out of that and start over again as a startup so it's not really a linear thing and it's and there there aren't really any um uh, uh, basic requirements to being an entrepreneur any anybody can be an entrepreneur to be a successful entrepreneur though um, there are a few few essential ingredients you kind of have to create the uh kind of seven habits of a successful entrepreneur and the first success the first habit is the habit of thinking about potential ideas that have market value and uh for those in your audience anybody can do this it's any anytime you've said to yourself there has to be a better way to do this right that's a startup idea sure you know, and it's a matter of training yourself to see, to look for those opportunities, and to, and keeping a journal of your ideas, um, which is what the best entrepreneurs do. They they can't stop thinking about um, improving the world, improving the human condition, improving the environment. Um, you know, in some cases tackling small problems, in some ca- cases tackling very big problems. Um, and they keep a record of their ideas. They, they train themselves kind of how to ideate on a, on a constant basis. That's that's a good habit of, a, of an entrepreneur. Then you have to have the guts to take the risk to pursue the idea. And that's, that is a characteristic of true entrepreneurs is being willing to uh, basically... Uh, I think Reed Hoffman has uh, the, the, one, of, one of the founders of LinkedIn has this famous quote that that lo- uh, making the commitment to, to do a startup is kind of kind of like jumping off a cliff and trying to assemble an airplane on the way down. You know you 're trying to put together a very complicated enterprise potentially while you 're in free fall in terms of time and resources. And you got to get the thing put together before you hit the bottom, right? So, so that takes guts, right? It takes people that are willing to manage risk uh, and are not risk averse. Um, and a lot of times, we'll coach people that it's the wrong time to take that risk. So, you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you have a family with four children and, you know, your income level is just barely kind of. Taking care of things, you know, you may want to think twice about jumping off that cliff and becoming an entrepreneur. So, um, you know, the ideal time to do this, honestly, is uh, before you have a family, or after you have established yourself uh, in a successful career and as a subject matter expert. Um, in between, you need to be very careful about the decision to put, you know, you and your family at risk by being an entrepreneur. But. But So being able to have comfort with risk-taking is a second essential ingredient. And then, um, you know, today with the cloud computing environment and the resources that are readily available for a very small amount of money and the globally connected economy, it's easier and cheaper today to launch a startup business of any kind, whether it's a product or a service, software or hardware um it's cheaper to launch a business today than it ever has been uh in right. at any stage of history mm-hmm. so so there's less risk than there ever has been but there's still risk that you have to be comfortable with uh manage
1: and the hard work is still there i mean it's not like it disappeared i mean that's yeah, right. that, uh, <laughs> that's a essential element yeah it's not a, uh, this is
0: not a lifestyle it's not kind of like something you want to jump into because it's Cool, or you're going to be the boss or you're going to, uh, you know, have control over your own destiny. Cause all of those things prove not to be quite as true as you think. Um, it's a lot of work. You end up having typically partners. So, uh, you're not necessarily, you know, the captain of the ship, you're, you're a co-captain. And when you bring in outside investors, they're also business partners. And, um, you find out that, uh, that you have to release some control in order to grow the company and that type of thing so it's it it's not a hollywood romance kind of thing it's it's hard work um but the potential dividends and the potential payoff is why everybody you know that that motivates a lot of people the most important thing that really motivates good startups is a sense of purpose and a sense that that it's it's really important um for uh for from a society standpoint or an individual standpoint or you know globally that I've got to get this done for the good of the world
1: oh yeah and we didn't even and we won't have time but I mean we didn't even touch the subject of uh, social entrepreneurship and things like that but uh perhaps that'd be for a future episode and with this we conclude episode three of something for your mind I hope you enjoyed the program and that you will uh, share it with uh, co-workers, friends, family, everybody around you so that they also can uh, benefit from uh, some of the interviews and the various type of content that we provide you.